right, well, let's pray one more time, brothers and sisters, as we get into God's word here. It's a joy uh, to be back in the book of Hebrews. Let's pray together and ask God to help us now. Father, we, uh, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for your grace, Lord, your mercy. And we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the truth that it contains. And we thank you for the potential for great blessing and for the potential for growth and for fortification. Lord, I just pray that as we reflect on this passage today, that you would cause us to see the importance of dependence upon you and trust. And remind us, Lord, that the faith that gives us access to redemption is also the faith that causes us to endure to the end. So, Lord, I pray that you would guide us and lead us. Father, I pray that you would teach us now your good word and help us, Lord, to learn from the example of Israel even as Scripture commands us to do, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we, we are back in the book of Hebrews, and we've been going through Hebrews now for some time. Thank you, Brother Lynn. Thank you. Seems a little dry to me. I don't know about you guys. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, we are knee-deep in this incredible chapter of the book of Hebrews, which has been called the Hall of Faith. Because it chronicles the life of the men and women of old who through simple faith had overcome all sorts of perilous trials and had sojourned through a life of obstacles and circumstances that the author of Hebrews goes on to say are so many that time would fail us to go back and recall all of them. Well, we come now to this passage, and really what this is, is sort of the tail end on the life of Moses. Go back to verse 23. You see there that the author begins to tell us about Moses by faith, and even before Moses was born. By faith, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents. And now we're looking really at the tail end of the whole saga of Moses' life with the crossing of the Red Sea. So I want to focus on these two redemptive events that the book of Hebrews sets out in front of us, namely the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea because they are here for our instruction. If nothing else, what these two redemptive events help us to do is they help us to see the faithfulness of God in our own life, to know that The God that led the children of Israel out of Egypt is the same God that is at work to help us today in our own present sojourn through this life. Isn't that remarkable? I think that's just amazing that the God that parted the Red Sea is at our disposal to to see us through on dry land, as it were, through all of the threats and enemies and foes And everything that is destructive about our world, the God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, is here now for us. And so, you think about that all-important word, by faith, because it is one word in Greek, by faith. You have access to these promises. By faith, you have access to the faithfulness of God. By faith, you can believe that this is true for you and for me. See, these redemptive events in Israel's history, 
they serve the same purpose that they do for us today. Uh, we look back on these events now separated by millennia. Well, the children of Israel did the same thing. They looked back on the Exodus, back on the redemptive acts of God to recall the faithfulness of God. Let me just give you one example. Psalm 106. It says, our fathers, in verse 7, it says, our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your loving kindness or your abundant kindness, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Watch this now. Nevertheless, he saved them for his own namesake, that he might make his power known. Now, that should give us great hope, you and I, because he saved a people who did not have perfect faith. He saved a people that often faltered and often failed. Why did he do it? He did it for his name's sake. That's the reason why God is going to carry you through all of your trials. That's the only reason God is going to bring you to the end of your faith, to the end of your sojourn, is so that he would make his power known in your life. And in mine. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians, you may turn there if you'd like, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he tells us to learn this lesson over and over again that we would go back to the history of Israel so that we would learn something about our own Christian walk. Uh, that's incredible. We could go back to Israel as a nation, and you're talking thousands of years of history and what God had taught them, and now this has practical uh, 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 lessons for you and I. In other words, we can gain practical wisdom for our own lives by going back and looking at the nation of Israel. In other words, we're instructed to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. These things, even as... The Apostle Paul talks about the events of the Exodus. He says these things happened as an example for us. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, verse 11. These things happened to them as an example that, and says, and they were written for our instruction. That's remarkable. Also, 1 Corinthians 10.18 says to the believers who are trying to combat idolatry, says, look at the nation Israel. That's exactly what you see is a God preserving a people through the centuries, through many trials and many perils and many temptations in an evil world. And that's exactly what's going on with us. Let's focus in a little bit closer on each of these redemptive events. First of all, the Passover, because... In each of these events, a different aspect of faith is being magnified. First, the Passover. Let's read um, verse 28 again. It says, By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who, he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Now, obviously, we know what the, pass the, the Passover is. It's a celebration that Israel was commanded to celebrate to commemorate that night, that faithful night when God sent in his destroyer, uh, probably an angelic being to go in as an instrument of Yahweh to smite the firstborn in all the land. And Israel had to put the blood over the lentils and the doorposts of their, of their houses in order to, uh, in order to be identified as God's people. Now you think about that. There's nothing really there's something mystical about the blood of a lamb that was applied to a doorpost. 
It's not the physical property of the blood that had some sort of magical power. It was faith. And that's what Hebrews is saying. It was that they trusted in what the blood represented. And would it be a far stretch for us even today, right now, as we think about what's already been said about Moses, that there were messianic implications for the people of Israel in the Passover that they knew and understood. I think we don't give them enough credit. Uh, Look back at the context even here with respect to Moses, but... Uh, look with me at verse 24, for example. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And this is what was going on in the thought life of Moses. Considering the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For... He was looking to the reward. See, not only did Moses have an eschatological worldview, but he also had a Christocentric worldview. He understood that what was happening to him in the context of identifying with the suffering of Israel was messianic in nature. And this is a very high point of that messianism. Uh, You know this because the New Testament brings this all together for us. What does it say in John chapter 1 verse 29 when it talks about God's chosen lamb? It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, this is John the Baptist speaking, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul also identifies Christ as the replacement of the Passover meal. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, or verse 7 rather. It says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Uh, this is in the context of a church being told to remove the immoral influences from their midst. Because there were some deep sin issues that were taking place in this church. And he says, just as you are in fact unleavened for, what is... What makes us unleavened? What what makes us clean? It is the fact that Christ is our Passover and He has been sacrificed. Isn't that amazing? While the Passover was to be celebrated and memorialized, now that the reality has come, the shadow of the Passover is no longer needed. Have you ever met these Christians? They like to celebrate the Passover still. And they want to go through the whole Jewish festival of it. And I just imagine Jesus sitting there going, what on earth are you doing? (laughs) I did this for the sole purpose so that you wouldn't have to celebrate the Passover anymore. The the, the, the reality has come. Why are you going back to shadows? We don't go back in redemptive history. We go forward. We stay where God goes. uh, And Christ is the reality of that. Uh, Let me just show you that quickly also from Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. This is a very important verse, theologically speaking, uh, because it is very important for hermeneutics. In other words, how do we interpret the Old Testament, the New Testament? Uh, Some of the most difficult parts of theology have to do with the discontinuity and continuity of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament times. Listen to what this says. Hebrews makes this incredible sweeping statement. He says, for the law, 
And there he's not talking specifically about the Ten Commandments. It's much more comprehensive than that. He says, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. Now, my NASB says form of things. It's a very interesting word. Uh, the literal word a cone means image. It's like in the image of God, a cone. Uh, what it basically is saying is that Christ has brought the reality, the substance, the very form of things. And he says, and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the old covenant sacrificial system only possessed a shadow. It only had a foresignifying of the reality. But now that Christ has come, we don't go back to the shadows. That's why Christ is our Passover. Uh, also, we know that Jesus is God's chosen lamb and that he is uniquely qualified to redeem us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says this, it says, knowing that you were not redeemed with per- perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but we can say you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The Passover is called such because of God's decision, remember, to pass over the houses of the Israelites, and by faith they saw the ultimate significance of that. This is what Jesus has done for his people under the new covenant. Not symbolically, not physically or nationally or temporally, but he has done it through his blood. He has covered us redemptively, perfectly, permanently. Oh, let me show you that very quickly. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 12, when I say he has covered us redemptively, I, that's not just a catchphrase. That's not just a Christian cliche. What I mean by that is what redemption means. What does redemption mean? Do you know? What does it mean to be redeemed? Because your soul is at stake here. Uh, to be redeemed means that you have been bought. You have been purchased. And what, and remember this folks, whatever God purchases, He procures. In other words, He obtains. He doesn't purchase it and leave it unredeemed. He takes it to Himself. That's why Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 12, He entered the holy place once for all, watch this, having obtained eternal redemption. You see that? He purchased it. He bought it. It's His The redemption of his people is a done deal. He has procured it to himself. This is, this is extremely important for our, 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 our assurance, uh, for our comfort, knowing that if Christ redeemed us, he will obtain us. If he purchased us, then he will procure us. He will take us to himself. That is so glorious. And he did this perfectly. Look at the chapter 10 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 12. It says that after he, um, 
after the Old Testament sacrifices are done over and over and over, which can never take away sins, it says, He, He, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, He sat down at the, at the right hand of God. You see that there? He sat down. And as many have pointed out, priests in the temple were never allowed to sit down. Matter of fact, the high priest, there was no chair in the holy place where he would minister. There was no place to sit. And therefore, the only place to sit was the Ark of the Covenant, which was a throne. But the priests cannot sit on that throne. But Jesus sat down. So where do you think he sat? He sat on the throne of God, which would have been blasphemous for any other priest to do that. But because he is God and because his sacrifice is perfect, he has the ability, the privilege of being at the right hand of power, which no mere human was able to obtain. But because Jesus is no mere human, he is the God-man He sits down after making a perfect sacrifice at the right hand of power where he shares equal power with his father forever. It is also not just a perfect redemption. It is also permanent. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 14. He says, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, which is really remarkable because a lot of people go to the book of Hebrews to show where there's some really, there's some really, um, thorny, exegetical passages in the book of Hebrews dealing with eternal security. Because it talks about, you know, once they fall away, it is impossible to renew to repentance once again, those who have, you know, fallen away and, and all of that. And, but here we're being told that the redemption of Christ secured his people for all time. It is permanent. It is perfect. Now, I want to hurry up and get to the Red Sea because this is also very important for us. Not only is it that by the, by the blood of Christ, we will be protected from the destroyer, from death itself. But on top of that, we will, like, like Israel, we will pass safely through the sea of destruction. Look at verse 29 of Hebrews 11. It says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, they were drowned. Wow. Isn't it amazing that these two redemptive uh, signs, these two redemptive acts that on the one hand save God's people also destroy God's enemies. That's exactly what happens here. But in terms of the passing through the Red Sea, this is an incredible thing because the Red Sea symbolized the release of Israel from bondage through union with their covenant mediator. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul makes it explicit that Just as we are baptized into Christ Jesus, the Israelites were actually baptized into Moses. In other words, they stood in solidarity with Moses as their covenant mediator, their covenant head, their covenant servant, just like we do today. 
In Romans chapter 6, verse 3, we are baptized into Christ. Same exact phraseology that he uses about Moses, which means this. We are united to Christ. We are identified by Christ. He is our covenant head, our covenant mediator, and he leads us. It is really remarkable to think about that in the New Testament, Jesus is often cast in the imagery of a new Exodus leader who comes to lead a host of captives and set them free. He was himself called out of Egypt, called to save his people. He is leading his people out of bondage. As it says in Acts chapter 26, not only was he called out of Egypt, but like Israel, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which is ultimately fulfilled in Matthew chapter 3, there is a herald that goes in front of him, John the Baptist making his way straight in the wilderness, even as Israel was in the wilderness. He spends 40 days in the wilderness, even as Israel spent 40 days years sojourning and on and on and on this analogy goes but what does it ultimately mean that jesus christ in christ has come something similar but something greater turn with me to hebrews chapter 2 this places us under great accountability because what this is saying is that just like israel experienced victory at the red sea so too you and i will experience all sorts of vindication number 1 a deliverance overcoming our evil world by faith and that's something that we need to see but just to show you that this is a greater deliverance look at hebrews 2 verse 1 for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, now that's a difficult phrase and sometimes very perplexing. What does the author mean, the word spoken through angels proved unalterable? Well, the consensus among the commentators is that's referring to the fact that the angels were somewhat of a, played something of a mediatorial role at the giving of the law at Sinai. And so angel and the angelic host was there superintending the giving of the law. And if that law proved unalterable and every transgression and every disobedience received a just penalty, God was, uh, God was thorough in punishing his people. Uh, just read Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. He lays out the curses that will come upon them for breaking the covenant. And if they deserved a just penalty, what does he say here? Well, this is, this is not your typical evangelical message, right? They say this is greater wrath, the potential for greater wrath if we disobey the word, not that came through angels, but I would say that came directly through the Lord. Look at what it says. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them by signs and wonders, by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. And all that, signs, wonders, miracles, all of that, all of that is going back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4 in particular, where signs and wonders were done because of the deliverance of Israel and because of and through the giving of the law. We are 
delivered. Just like Israel, we're accountable to a great salvation. But also this, there's also a conquest where we, like Israel, overcome our enemies by faith. And you see that there in the text. It says, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. You see the safety there? They passed through dry land. Does he really have to say it like that? Why does he just say they just passed through? You see, dry land is is ultimately going back to Genesis chapter 1, where God separates the waters and the dry land. And so what is emerging through the Exodus is a new creation. Uh, I don't have time to get into that right now, but you know how much I love that stuff. <laughs> if you've been in Sunday school for any time, we've talked about biblical theology for a long time. But uh, that's the imagery that's going on here. By crossing fr- uh, through the Red Sea, you're leaving one realm and you're going into a new realm. You're leaving Egypt and you are going into Canaan. You're heading home. You're going to a different world altogether. And God safely brings His people through. But when His enemies attempted to do the same, the Egyptians, when they attempted it, they drowned. God drowned them. And so this, of course, to us today, because we are not so much worried about a physical foe. There's not an army after us outside the gates of the the, the walls of this church necessarily. I guess that depends whether or not you live in the Middle East, but you know what I mean. Our foes today, according to Scripture, mainly is that we have spiritual forces that we combat. The reality is, though, is that from the very beginning, there has been an anti-Christ notion from the world to the church. Now, you know this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said what? I will put enmity. And that enmity proved to be a global cosmic enmity of all of those who are outside of the promised seed and all of those that are in the promised seed. So there's this abiding hostility now crystallized and an anti-Christian notion that now dominates our world. You know, apologetics is all about worldviews, is it not? I mean, that's what we saw. But a person's worldview is determined by their spiritual condition, whether they are in Christ or not. I mean, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said to Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can show him your argument, and I'm not undermining anything that Jason Lyle is saying because I do exactly, I try to do what Dr. Lyle is teaching us to do, and I use apologetics because God wants us to, but you can, we know this, right? We can belabor the points. We can argue tirelessly. We can show the evidence tirelessly. We can bring up metaphysics and epistemology and the laws of logic, and we can show them the inconsistency of their worldview, but at the end of the day, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. You cannot perceive it for what it is. Why? Because Romans 8 tells us the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that the natural man does not accept 
the things of the Spirit. He doesn't accept them. They're not acceptable to them um, because they are spiritually appraised. It's not just that you have the wrong thought life. It's that you have the wrong disposition altogether because your spirit is not right with God. Because as Scripture says, unless you repent, you won't know the truth. That's what happens. And today our enemies, maybe unlike Israel, but our enemies are real. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul did not have a naturalistic worldview. The Apostle Paul was not ashamed, not afraid, and not bashful of talking about our spiritual enemies like many uh, modern American Christians are today. We are afraid to go demon hunting, right? But we also dare not underestimate the power of what the Apostle Paul calls the spiritual forces of darkness. He wasn't playing games when he was talking about this. He wasn't joking. This is what he says, Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord and the the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers. And at that point, we might be tempted to think, oh yes, Egypt, Pharaoh. Against the world forces of this darkness. And then he says, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, how do we do warfare in the heavenly places? Can't jump high enough, right? We can't reach heaven. That's not at all what it's talking about. In the heavenly places is something like in the spiritual realm. And how do you do that? Pull on the Put on the whole armor of God and he goes into a whole dissertation on what does the armor of God look like and that will determine how well you do in your warfare. Lastly, just like Israel, not only are we going to overcome and not only are we going to be delivered, not only is there going to be a conquest of our enemies, but there is also an inheritance because by faith we overcome our earthly pilgrimage. Notice what it says. They passed through the Red Sea. And this is what I want to end on. That because the book of Hebrews is so littered with this. And that is this. By faith, what happened to Israel in passing through the Red Sea and taking over the promised land, which we'll look at more, Lord willing, next week in the in the coming verses. But what it's talking about there is Israel obtaining its inheritance. Well, we have an inheritance. Look with me to chapter 9 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us specifically that not only has Christ obtained our redemption, but He's also granted us an inheritance. Verse 15 of chapter 9. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that... Since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, which is the only way we will be forgiven for breaking the Ten Commandments. 
Those who have been called, listen to the, listen to the tone of divine sovereignty. Those that have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now that language, um, that language is not just written for us so, so that we can sort of have a sentimental attachment to, you know, uh, to heaven, right? The language of inheritance is a fulfillment of many, many passages that were given to us out of the Old Testament. So just a little bit of Old Testament theology here, because what, what Israel failed to obtain in their conquest of Canaan, which now has been proven to be a typological event that typifies what? Not us going in, trying to go back to Palestine, but it's actually typological of what? Our inheritance of a new heavens and of a new earth where righteousness dwells. Jeremiah. Now, maybe turn there with me. Don't be afraid to go there with me. But in Jeremiah's, the prophets are seeing this because the prophets foresaw all of this and they spoke of all of this. But Jeremiah, in talking about what will take place under a new covenant, what in Jeremiah he calls the everlasting covenant, listen to what is said there. Jeremiah 32, beginning of verse 21. You brought your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders. Sound familiar? What we just read out of Hebrews. Signs and wonders. He says, and with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror and gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but, now that's very important, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this calamity come upon them. And so what does Jeremiah do? Well, Jeremiah 33 is the answer to all this. The answer to what? This calamity. What calamity? The Babylonian captivity where the people of God are captive under these evil forces. And what is being promised here is that through a new covenant, God is going to bless His people again and He is going to plant them in the land. Uh, Let me read to you maybe another one. Uh, Joel chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Joel chapter 3, and I'll go quickly here. Joel makes a reference to a certain day. In that day. Now, what day is Joel talking about? Because by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, once again, Israel is in shambles. And if you know anything about intertestamental history, you understand that up to the first century, Israel has been in struggle after struggle. During the Maccabean Revolt, you had all of the zealots that had risen up and they were trying to take power uh, uh, to their own hands and try to overcome by the, by the sword. But time and again, they continued to fail and fail and fail, continue to be oppressed by one power after another until at last they arrived under Rome. And we know what happened in 70 A.D. 
70 AD, the city of Israel was razed. It was destroyed. The temple destroyed. The people cast out. And this is because Jesus says, I leave your house desolate. I will take the kingdom has been taken from you and given to another people bearing fruit. So when Joel says, in that day, he's not talking about when Israel temporarily left Babylon. He's looking to a future time. And he says, in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. And the brooks of Judah will flow with water and the spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. And so as a modern 21st century Christian, you may read a verse like that and go, huh? <laughs> valley of Shittim? <laughs> what does that mean to me today, 21st century with technology and, you know, cell phones and all of that? Is it even relevant to me anymore? It is very relevant to you because this is why. It's all heading towards Zion. Watch. Egypt will become a waste. Edom will become a desolate place because of the the violence done to the sons of Judah in in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 as we draw things to a close. What I'm suggesting to you is that the reason why we can learn from the example of Israel passing through the Red Sea is because as they passed through the Red Sea, they were coming into their inherited land. But now that whole historical event was nothing more than a mere shadow, a foreshadowing of you and I coming into our eternal inheritance. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 18. This is a passage we have looked at over and over and over again. Where does the theology of Zion go in the Bible? It goes right here. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and and to a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard beg no further word be spoken for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. And so what he's saying is you are not coming back to the old covenant. You're not back at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's the wrong mountain. But he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Now, this is, this is amazing here. The tense of the Greek word, you have come, is present tense. He didn't say, You will come to Mount. That's future tense. He said, you have come. You have come to Mount Zion. You have already, we could say, as many uh, commentators translate it, you have already come to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem in that day. What 
What Joel and the prophets were talking about was not revisiting Jerusalem, the earthly geographical place. They were talking about the eschatological new Jerusalem that would, re- would emerge at the end of the age. That's what we have come to. Heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels, and maybe this explains it for us, to the general assembly and the church. See that? The church of the firstborn. Who are the firstborn? The firstborn is a plural word. It's not talking about Christ. Church of the firstborn. Oh, you mean the church of Christ. It's not what he's talking about. The church of the firstborn is plural, which means the saints. The church of the saints. Those who have been born again. Those who have experienced spiritual life. The firstborn who are to be resurrected who are already enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of better, that, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What is God doing? He's reminding us, brothers and sisters, that by faith, just like Israel, with great trepidation, walked through an ocean on dry land. You and I, though we may be battered, beaten, bruised, or to use the language of Hebrews, though we may have weak hands and feeble knees, though we, we may be battered, persecuted, killed all day long, though we may be oppressed by everyone and everything around us in this world, we will arrive at our inherited, our place of inheritance. We will arrive not at Sinai, but at Zion, at the city of the living God. And because you are in union with Christ, there is a sense in which because and by virtue of faith in Christ, you are already there. What what does the Bible say? We are seated with Him in heavenly places. Present tense. But physically you're here. Yes, yes, yes. But the Bible is speaking positionally, spiritually. You are already one with Christ. If He's on the throne, I know it sounds crazy, but as it were, you're on the throne with Him. You're so united to Him. Do you see how this could change your life? When trials come in, when suffering comes in, when temptation, when sin, when you're battling, when you're struggling, when your hands are weak, your knees are feeble, and you're reminded you're walking through. You're crossing. You're crossing through the Red Sea. You will soon arrive to your everlasting inheritance. He'll plant you in the land. Oh, A lot of uh, theologians are afraid of all those land passages, you know, because there's the whole covenantal dispensational battle, which you guys are probably thinking about right now. But there's that whole debate. I love it. I go to the Old Testament and I read everything about being planted in the land and how there's going to be milk and honey and there will be a new creation and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. I'm thinking, great, this is for me. That's a whole nother teaching. I better stop. (laughs) 
I'm just happy to be back in Hebrews. Let's pray together. Father, it is for us. These promises, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ. And so by virtue of the fact that we are united to your son Jesus, we can bank on these promises. We know that it may seem that Enemies are pursuing. We're surrounded by danger on all sides. But the reality is you are bringing us safely through by faith. And so, Lord, would you strengthen the faith of every believer in this room? Right now, would you strengthen their faith to overcome their present circumstances, their trials, the things they're not telling anybody Maybe uh, their struggle with sin. Maybe their battle at work. Maybe their struggle in the family, in the home, in the marriage. Would you, by faith, strengthen them to see that they are passing through and that they have an inheritance that's so great that if they would only meditate and reflect on it for a minute, then they would see truly how blessed and highly favored they are. We give you all Thanks. We give you all praise. We praise you as the Holy One of Israel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.